As we begin this morning, I would like to start by asking you a simple question. When you were young, who did you want to be? Now, I didn't say, I didn't ask, what did you want to be? But when you were young, who did you want to be? Some of you may know what I'm getting at. Um, did you want to be Batman? Did you want to be Superman? Wonder Girl, Spider-Man? Maybe it wasn't a superhero. Maybe it was something more normal. Maybe Buzz Aldridge or Neil Armstrong. Maybe it was a sports figure. For me growing up, it was Roger Starbuck, the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys in the 70s. Uh, maybe it was Judy Garland. Maybe you wanted to be a Mouseketeer. Maybe if you grew up in the 90s, it was a Power Ranger. Like every kid in Hawaii that grew up in the 70s and 80s, the, my idols, the people I wanted to be was Kikaida, Kamen Rider V3, and of course the famous Bruce Lee. Now, unless you have an Asian background, you have no idea who these guys are, but if you grew up in a culture like I did, then these were your superheroes. And of course, everyone wanted to be Bruce Lee, right? Now, as I got older though, the people I looked up to, the people I wanted to be changed, and so I went from these guys to George Lynch. Jimi Hendrix was awesome, and Eddie Jackson. We all have people we look to, that we want to be like, that we pattern our lives after. Good or bad, that's just what we do. Now, child psychologists say that this is actually a way that children find a, a develop a sense of identity. Uh, they even develop things like moral reasoning and cognitive skill as they pretend to be these characters, especially when they're younger, and figure out how they would conduct themselves in given situations. Now, you know that impulse to copy or to imitate someone else does not go away simply because we grow up. I mean, just look at Tim Thetford. He still wants to be Wolverine, right? I mean, if you guys know Tim, he still wants to be the Wolverine. As we get older, the only thing that changes, it gets more subtle and we're less conscious about the process, but the process still remains. We are still looking to others to know how to behave, how to dress, how to conduct ourselves, how we go through life. If you go to any like Walmart or Target and you look at the magazine area, isn't that exactly what all the men's and women's magazines are about? GQ, Esquire, Men's Fitness, Elle, Vogue, Cosmopolitan, they're all holding out to people a vision of life, a way of being, an identity to latch onto. Now, whether it's, it's traditional magazines or you go on the internet and you have these Instagram stars or these Pinterest channels or YouTube channels, whatever it is, they have such followings because they're holding out to people a way of being, a way of living. And yeah, some of it, some of it can be fun, some of it's benign, occasionally they can be helpful, a lot of it's a waste of time, and some of it, though, is actually toxic to your souls. But this, this kind of impulse to draw our sense of our identity from others is not merely a psychological observation. It's a theological truth. So the fact that we've observed this amongst kids and we've kind of categorized it in some kind of way of developmental uh, process, that might be very true. But the reality is it's true because it's actually a theological truth that we notice most acutely in children, but of all people as well. The first chapter of the Bible, you go to Genesis chapter 1, and you're going to see three times this teaching coming out. Genesis 1, 26, God says, then God said, let us make man in our image. 
And then again, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created him. Now, from our Western American idea, we read that, and you're like, man, you're just repeating yourself. You said the same thing three times. But again, this wasn't, this wasn't written in America this year. This was a Hebrew culture and context thousands of years ago. And when you wanted to stress the significance or importance of something, you merely just repeated it. Which is why oftentimes you see in the Old Testament, holy, holy, holy. God's not just holy once, he's not holy twice, he's holy, holy, holy. So in Genesis 1, when it's repeated three times that humanity is made in the image of God, it's saying a very significant anthropological truth. Human beings are image bearers. This is fundamental to our very design. People are always looking to be like others because humanity was made to be like another. Does that make sense? People are always looking to be like another because humanity was meant to be like another. That's what the Bible calls being an image bearer. That's a fundamental reality of all human beings. Whether or not you are a Christian, this is true of you. What you and I were made to do, reflect the image of something else. We were meant to understand ourselves from outside ourselves. So you can call it an idol, a hero, a mentor, an example, whatever it might be. But everyone in the world draws their sense of identity, was intended to draw their sense of identity, not from themselves, but from something outside themselves and reflect that. And see, this is where our society gets really confused because we have one of two very damaging messages that are incorrect. On the one hand, you have the entertainment culture that's providing all these images for us to understand and look like and emulate, and they're all the wrong images. And thankfully, have you noticed maybe in the last five years, it's called the Photoshop protest where models and actors and actresses are protesting the use of photoshopping their images because they realize what a detrimental thing this has been on our society to give pictures of men and women that are nearly perfection and that nobody's that way. And so now the new move is to use just regular models that are not photoshopped out. So at least there's some correction there, right? But you've had the entertainment industry holding all the wrong images for us to image and reflect. And then on the other side, though, you have, if it's not that message, you have what I call, and I'll put the blame right at Disney's feet, uh, of the whole look within yourselves. Look inside yourselves for your happiness and, and future and hope and all those kinds of things. You guys heard that mentality, right? Believe in yourself. Look within yourself. Well, there's a problem with that, very confusing problem. So, so just this morning, about 10 minutes before service, I remembered I was, I'm reading this book this week by Harvard University Press on, on mental illness. And this is the first two sentences of the book from Harvard. This is the first two sentences. Nearly 50% of Americans have been mentally ill at some point in their lives, and more than a quarter have suffered from mental illness in the past 12 months. Madness, it seems, is rampant in America. Okay, so on the one hand, Disney, Disney's telling me to look within myself. On the other hand, Harvard says if I look in myself, there's a half 50% chance I'm off my rocker, right? <laughs> Neither of these options are preferable. And if I don't look to Disney or Harvard, I look to just Hollywood, and I got all these wrong images, there's a problem in our society. We were meant to look outside of ourselves for our identity and understanding who we are, but everywhere we look, and apparently even inside, it's not working out well. There's got to be another way. 
And the Bible in spades talks about this and our passage this morning actually touches on it as well. In Philippians chapter three, verses 17 to 21, Paul is not simply talking about some um, mentalities of fruitful Christian living, although that is there. What Paul is actually getting at is a more fundamental reality, and that is the very essence of what it means to live and how to have a fulfilling life by being tapped into the true essence of what it means to be a human being. In other words, think of it this way. What is the image that you are putting in front of yourself that is acting as the north star of your life. And we all are doing it. I was having a conversation with a friend who's sitting in our congregation right now, and, and he, he was saying, yeah, even those people who don't want to act like they have an image, they just, they're, I'm my own person kind of thing, and yet they look exactly like a whole other demographic of people. We cannot help but to reflect what's around us because that's what we were designed to do. The question is, how conscious of you are, are you of that and what is the image that is transforming your life? Does it lead to a flourishing and full humanity? Or is it leading to despair and, and, and what the French called nihilism, nothingness? And so Paul addresses that in three ways this morning. Number one, imitating Christ is the pattern of true humanity. Number two, following from that, ignoring Christ is the pathway to total despair. And then finally, thirdly, awaiting Christ is the promise of complete humanity. We'll spend most of our time on points one and two, and I'll just make just tangentially some comments about our complete humanity, but I really want to lay the foundation. Number one, imitating Christ is the pattern for true humanity. Now, if you remember our teaching through Philippians, Paul has been kind of circling, circling around this topic for quite some time since we began chapter two. Chapter 2, Paul held out the example for humanity, par excellence example is Jesus Christ himself. Chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, right? But recognizing that we need uh, examples that we can relate to maybe a little bit more daily, he offers the example of Timothy in chapter 2, verses 19 through 25, 24. And then he follows it up with the example of Paphroditus, chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. So he's been talking about this perfect image of humanity, and he's been giving some examples. And finally, he just comes out and lays it on the table here in chapter 3 at the end. He says, imitate me. If you haven't picked this up by now, copy me. Imitate me and pay really close attention to others who are following in the same example. So he just throws it out there. Keep in mind, let's, let's review. Back in Philippians chapter 2, 2, Paul had said, being of the same mind, right? Do this thing, think this way. In chapter 2, verse 5, he said, have this mind. In chapter 3, verse 15, he said, those who are mature, those who are complete, think this way. And so what Paul is getting at is that while your Christian faith, our Christian faith collectively is going to look vastly different from one another because we all have different contexts, we all have different situations, different personalities, different temperaments. It's going to look, the way we display the glory of God is going to look very different from everyone in this room. But that doesn't mean that there's no similarity, that there's no core things that keep that diversity unified. What Paul is saying is there's a certain thing that keeps this wonderful diversity unified and it's thinking this way, being this way, having this mentality. And in case we didn't pick it up, finally he just says, imitate me. 
So in other words, the way God reaches this diverse world is with a diverse people. But in making sure they all understand the same gospel, there's a sameness to the way we live and think. And that's what Paul is talking about here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, it was to live as Christ lived. In chapter 3, it was to value Christ as the surpassing value of all things. But now the reason Paul said, finally, just imitate me is not because of some kind of inflated ego, but like he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, Paul knew, he even said it in chapter 3, verse 12, look, I haven't achieved, I haven't gotten there yet. But he's saying, imitate me because everything within me I press toward the goal of being like Christ and knowing him. So imitate me as I imitate Christ. Why? Because Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 on the screens behind me, is the image of God. Now, hopefully you're paying attention. You're going, wait a minute. Because just a few minutes ago, you took us to Genesis and you made a big point of saying that the Bible says that humanity was made in the image of God, but now all of a sudden there's a bait and switch because in the New Testament, Paul is saying Jesus is the image of God. Well, see, this is the people think, well, see, this is why the Bible can't get its act together because it's contradictory. That's not what's going on at all. But it's a very deliberate statement that Paul is saying the gospel of the glory of Christ, by the way, who is the image of God. Paul deliberately wrote that. It's not like he didn't know about Genesis 1. He knows what he's doing. For, for, in order for you to understand this, I have to kind of give you one of the kind of, I feel like I'm just going to knock over Raymond's drums here, the, the, the background story of what's happening. And in one sense, this is the entire arc of the Old Testament. In Genesis 1, it records that God is making this amazing creation and he wants his glory to spread through all of it. So he creates humanity to be his image bearers, to represent his rule, to represent his character, his righteousness, his goodness, his compassion, his mercy, everywhere that it would spread throughout the creation. And that's what we got to be. That's what humanity is. So he says, make them in my image and they'll reflect my glory. But what did we do? What does chapter 3 tell us? Chapter 3 tells us that humanity said, ah, no, <laughs> no thank you. I think I'd rather just do my own thing. And humanity turned its back on God. It's called sin. And so humanity created to reflect that image, now reflected the image of something else, sin and itself. And so the entire story arc of the Old Testament, God says, okay, if humanity, Adam and Eve, have rejected my ref reflecting me, I want to start over again. And years later, he wipes out the earth, except for one family, one man, Noah, who is a righteous man, says, I can start over with this guy. And he starts over with Noah, because Adam and Eve were a fail, but Noah fails. So he says in Genesis 12, I want to start over again, and I find a man named Abraham. I'm going to start over from Abraham. Abraham will reflect me, and Abraham fails. And so it goes on to Israel, and Israel as a nation fails. Fail, fail, fail. Maybe it's going to be King David. Maybe he's going to be the king of all kings. Fail. Maybe he'll be his son. Maybe all the world will be blessed through Solomon. Fail, fail, fail. Until finally Jesus comes on the scene. I will represent humanity. Which is, by the way, why Jesus must be truly human. 
Jesus shows up to represent humanity, and he does not fail. In Romans chapter 5, we won't read it right now. If you're a note taker, write down Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Go home. It'll take you three minutes, four minutes to read it. This is what Paul is saying, that Christ is the reboot of humanity. Eh, We're going to read it. Uh, Romans chapter 5. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, page 943, if you're using a pew Bible. This is what Paul says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying, just like this whole thing went sideways because of Adam, Jesus reboots humanity, and anyone in Jesus inherits the righteousness of Christ. So the New Testament says, Christ is the image of God. Because Christ did what humanity, every man, woman, child could never do throughout the ages, perfectly image and reflect the God that they were intended to all along. And so it says Christ is the image of God. In other words, he's this new humanity. That's why in the New Testament, especially the book of Ephesians, you see the phrase all over the place, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, is because we are in him just like we were once in Adam. This is behind Paul's desire, his command, imitate me, imitate Timothy, and imitate Epaphroditus, imitate all the others who are making Christ their one goal and one passion. But here's the great news, friends. If Christ is true humanity, and I think we can make that case, Genesis 1, 2 Corinthians 2, 4, 4. If humanity was made to image Christ, but we failed, but the New Testament says that Jesus is the image, excuse me, if humanity was made to image God and we failed, but the New Testament says Jesus is the image of God, then Jesus is that new humanity. You know the good news about this, some of the payoff is? Was Jesus an addict of some sort? Was he ever apathetic? Was he ever unrighteously, excuse me, sinfully angry? Was Jesus ever lacking in compassion? Was Jesus ever selfishly proud? Never. My point is, 
anger, addiction, anxieties, apathy, lack of compassion, pride, arrogance, all the things we struggle with, you and I, Jesus never did. And if Jesus is the picture of humanity, then that means all those things are not inherent to being human. In other words, if you struggle with any of those, your hope of overcoming them is to be found in Christ who is true human. All the things we struggle with, we feel like this will never ever be different. Oh, it will be because those are not inherent to being human because the perfect human didn't have any of those problems. Right? That's amazing news. But realizing, friends, that we all need these more practical examples we can cling on to, the New Testament constantly commands and encourages us, find examples, imitate those around you. So 2 Thessalonians 3, 9, Paul says, we left you an example to imitate. 1 Timothy 4, 12, Paul says, be an example in your youth. Hebrews 13 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their lives, the way of life, and imitate their faith. 1 Peter 5, he writes to all the shepherds, be examples to the flock. The reason is the goal of all of our humanity, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, that is the goal of all that we are headed to, is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And just a few verses before Paul says, Jesus is the image of God, look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. All of us in this room are in varying degrees of reflecting the image and glory of God, aren't we? For whatever reason, maybe you're a brand new Christian. Uh, maybe you just started to understand your faith. Maybe you have been a veteran for 15 years and God has worked out. We're all at varying degrees of being transformed in that same image. This is why it's so important to be in a local church. This is why me, Jesus, at Starbucks by ourselves or me and Jesus on the beach by myself does not work. Because you need examples to latch onto. You need fathers, if you're a young father, to show you what it's like to love your wife, not just the first year of marriage, not just the second or the fifth or the tenth or the fifteenth or the twentieth, but the fiftieth, but the sixtieth. We've had couples like this in our church. The seventieth. And I told them they got to teach our young marriage class or something. You need that example. If you are in your 70th year of life, you need young examples to remind you of the zeal and passion and fervor for the things of God and not to be given into cynicism. We need examples all around us to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now think about this before we get to point two. If Christ is the perfection of humanity, then it follows from that, the closer you get to Christ, what? the closer you actually become more human. If we're doing our exegesis right, if we're putting this together, we're saying if Christ is the example of what humanity should look like, the closer you come to him, the closer you actually come to knowing what being human is like. The reverse is also true though, isn't it? If Christ is the picture of what true humanity is, the further you get away from him, the more you ignore him, the less you become human. You can't get away from the logic is rock solid. 
And so imitating Christ is the pattern for true humanity. Ignoring Christ is the pathway to despair, which is why Paul is weeping in these next verses. Paul says, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And friends, there are many of them. They're, they're, they're the Richard Dawkins, the, the Christopher Hitchens, the, Dan, the Samuel Dennett types, right? The, the new atheists out there. Uh, they are, somebody want to get that? <laughs> they, they are very aggressively enemies of the gospel of Christ, and they're fine with that. But then there are other enemies of the gospel of Christ. They're the Benny Hins, the Stephen Furtick's, the Joel Olsteins. And just about anybody on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, these are enemies of the gospel of Christ, and it would be a disservice not to warn you of these things. But then there's the, the Robert Schuler, the Paul Tillichs, the Brian McLarens, the liberal positive feel-good gospel that is no gospel. These are enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you might be, say, you might be saying you shouldn't name names, but friends, the Bible does. The Bible names names. Jesus warned that there are many antichrists coming. Paul warned against those who abandoned the gospel. Peter warned you against them. John the apostle warned you against them. The reality is, friends, in the world and in the church, it is full of heretics, abusers, false prophets, ticklers, and speculators. Now, on one level, that should anger us for the glory of God's being diminished, but it should grieve us as equally as it angers you, if not more, because Paul was grieved. Look at, this is why he was grieved. Look at verse 19. These four statements are heartbreaking. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, their minds set on things of the earth. Now, I want to do what I can to bring Paul's teaching as close to home as I can. The reality is in a church like ours, you're all well taught. Um, for the majority of you, I am not afraid that any of you will be deceived by the arguments of the new atheists. By the way, their arguments are neither new nor are they very good arguments. But I don't think any of you are going to be taken in by that. I don't think any of you here are going to be taken in by the health and wealth hucksters out there. And I know you won't be taken in by the liberal gospelless gospel. But that doesn't mean you're still not in danger if you're not being careful. Here's what I mean by that. When we read verse 19, actually, when we read those two verses, enemies of the, the cross of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they, they revel in their shame, their God is their belly. You can be tempted to think, oh, that, that applies to that first category, these aggressive, anti-any kind of religion, wing of society, and that's not me, so this doesn't really have much application to me. I'm in no danger of becoming an enemy of the gospel. Right? That's what we're tempted to think when we read those verses. But do you remember how we started chapter 3 when Paul was talking about, you know, we are the circumcision. And he said, beware of those evildoers. Who were the evildoers? It was the religious Jews. And he called evildoers. So, so what were these evil Jews doing? Do you remember? Were they burning down the churches and, and, and throwing the Christians into the prisons? Nope, they weren't doing that. Were they beating them in the streets? There's a Christian, and they just all jumped on him and beat him with the yarmulke or something. No, they didn't do that. Were they throwing them into their prisons, taking away their rights? They did none of those things. So what were they doing? Do you remember? 
They were simply saying, oh, you can be a Christian, but you got to do these Jewish identity markers of circumcision. You do that and you're good. And Paul lost his mind and called them evildoers. That was evil? And it wasn't because Paul was some crotchety old man or some religious crank. It's because Paul recognized when you add anything of human merit or effort to the gospel of grace, you have fundamentally changed the gospel of grace into a gospel of works, and you have supplanted Christ as the Savior and made Christ and you the Savior. Yes, Jesus is good, but you got to do X, Y, and Z too. And Paul lost his mind. So they were good religious people that Paul rightly recognized this is evil. You have twisted the gospel ever so subtly, but you've twisted it. It's now about you and God rather than just God and his saving work. And notice in verse 19 how Paul defines this mindset. He concludes it by saying, these enemies of the cross are so because their minds are set on earthly things. It's a very important point because this word minds, uh, um, we translate it as mind, we translate it as mentality, thought, thinking, is used several times in the book of Philippians. What I want to do is take you to Luke's gospel. So keep your finger in Philippians and go with me to Luke's gospel because Jesus makes this same point in one of his parables. Luke's gospel, chapter 14. It's um, page 874 if you're using the Pew Bibles. So here we have uh, Luke 14, put it in context, is a great chapter in Luke describing what true discipleship is as opposed to kind of false or light discipleship, people who latched on to Jesus for other reasons. And Jesus is really trying to be clear what is a real disciple of Christ. So he's at a, a meal and he's talking about the blessings of the kingdom and he's surrounded by a lot of these good Jewish people, right? And they're thinking, I'm Jewish, I'm in, so no problem. I've got the identity markers, I'm circumcised, I obey Torah, I keep Sabbath, I'm good. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So it was like, yep, we're all in, no problem. We were doing the things, we're going to church, we're doing all the religious things we should be doing. Verse 16, but Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five, oaks, five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Verse 20. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Please excuse me. So Jesus is sharing to, to people who think they're in the kingdom, good Jewish people who think they're just in because they're doing the religious things that you're supposed to do. And Jesus gives a parable of all these people who refuse the blessings of coming to the king's banquet. Let me read you an insightful quote by John Piper on this very parable. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. 
The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Is there some appetite in your life for the good things of life that God has richly, abundantly, and graciously blessed you with that has eclipsed the gospel's reach into the way you live that life? Are you imitating a vision of life that God is not necessarily intended for you to imitate? And it can be a good vision for life, but it's not the vision of life that God has for you that is in all intents purposes practically leading you to set your mind on the things of this world and not the things of God. Friends, like I said, I am not worried that 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if the devil were to show up here, you know, his, his pitchfork and all the things we think of, red horns and the tail, none of you are going to follow him. It's not going to happen. An enemy of the cross is more often than not looking like a good option than an enemy of the cross. Or else why would you follow? You understand that? And we have these, we're imitating images of life that they don't fit those categories. It's not outrank heresy. It's not denying the inerrancy of Scripture. It is not anti-God. It can be very good, normal, everyday things that dullen your passion and understanding of living for the gospel. Maxing out your credit card so you can go on a vacation. Causing marital discord because of that unwise stewardship. That's setting your mind on the things of this world. You can come to church, you can read your Bible, you can sing the praise songs and act like an enemy of the gospel because that is not thinking the way the Bible wants you to think. Maybe God's put limitations on you so you can't afford these great vacations. And again, I have nothing against vacations, but maybe God's put limitations on you that he expects you to live within. Buying a new car. I love that, what is it, the uh, Alfa Romeo 2018 Quadrifolio. I love that. I'm going to have to settle for a Hyundai. <laughs> because, because that's wisdom in my context. Now, if you've got, uh, uh, you know, you got an Alfa Romeo, it's not, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. You know what I'm saying, though. An enemy of the cross is more often than not just going to look like a good option. And if your mind is not set on the things of God, if you don't have this mindset Paul's talking about, you will conduct yourself as someone who's an enemy of the cross and the end will not be well. Friends, that's our danger. That's the, the way we can be, have our feet cut out right from under us. It's not the obvious guy saying that you can be a God of your own. It's not the one saying that if you just give more, God will give you all this money. That's not what I think this congregation is going to be challenged with. It's going to be the lifestyles of the, I was going to say lifestyles of the rich and famous. I'm dating myself. But, you know, it's going to be the, the South Orange County lifestyle that lulls us into lack of passion for the things of God. 
friends, we have one of our missionaries coming back in this next year. He and his family are coming on furlough from Papua New Guinea. He got saved because of our church, and, he and, and they're out in the mission field, the Haberchaks. Take them out to lunch and just learn what it is. I'm not saying that you can't live that way and that you have to be a missionary, but man, to say, you know what, I want to set my minds on things above. I'm going to leave it all behind. For most of you, what that will look like is you still work your jobs, you still what you do, do what you do, but there's a whole way of thinking that has changed. This is what Jesus' point was in Luke 14. It's going to be the good things that, that take us away from the banquet table of God's love. I don't want that to happen to you. Notice Paul's use of the metaphor belly. I think that he gets traction out of it for two reasons. Number one, it shows the earthiness, the earthliness of these desires, that they're, they're not spiritual. They're kind of just kind of crass food, want to eat good food. And it shows the lack of satisfaction you'll get from those things, right? You guys have all, like, you're starving, you eat lunch, you're fine. And then what, in four hours, what's up? You're hungry again. The belly is never satisfied. And what Paul is saying is those minds have their, their people with their minds set on the things of the earth. Their God is their belly, and that God is never satisfied. It is a quick slope to despair when you try to live a life filled your mind with the things of this world because you weren't designed for those things. You were designed to be the image and reflection of God. Get in alignment with that. Jesus is our perfect example. I already talked about this word, their mindset. This is used negatively in 3.19, but it's used positively in 2.2, 2.5, and 3.15. It's talking about a whole way of thinking that sets the trajectory of your life. One will lead to flourishing and true humanity. One leads to despair, and their end is destruction. So imitating Christ leads to our true humanity. Ignoring Christ leads to total despair. Awaiting Christ, we're almost done here, leads to a complete humanity. I want you to notice the contrast from verses 21, 20 to 21 to 18, 19. The stark contrast is amazing. Those who have their minds set on this world, Paul says their end is destruction and shame, but those on the things of God have glory and power. And Paul ends by talking about the resurrection body of new believers. And you think, what in the world? How does that, how, that was a switch, a quick topic switch. And I think what Paul is getting at is that when you imitate Christ, it's not just some ethical, moral, spiritual thing, but it actually has physical, tangible realities to it, most clearly seen in the fact that one day we will all have resurrection bodies identical to that of Jesus Christ. So when we imitate him, him, we truly become like him in every way conceivable. I love the word he says, uh, lowly bodies. You notice that there? That he'll transform our lowly bodies. I, I love the NIV or the New King James. They translate it as bodies of humiliation. Wow. Because the next time you go to the gym and there's that guy just you know, checking himself out, you can say the Bible says you have a body of humiliation right there, you know. Don't live for that. Young girls and women always looking for your beauty and your exterior. The Bible says you have a, don't say this to a woman. Um, you guys know the point. What Paul says, what he means is that the, the, the whole makeup of the body is going towards humiliation, not physically although the physical is a, a sign to what's really going on. 
That's the, that's the reality, right? The physical decay, the physical falling apart is only pointing to the reality of what's happening inside because of sin. And Paul is ending by reminding these Philippians, you will have a glorious body, a body of strength, vitality, not lack or need, but abundance. And, and some of you know right now in our own family, my father-in-law has, has had a, a difficult time. His body is decaying. We've been in the hospital every day this week because one thing or another, it's breaking down. And as I studied this passage, I thought, Well, Will's going to get, and, and he knows it. He, he's like, I'm done with this body of humiliation, and that whole phrase has taken on a whole new meaning for him in the last couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to a glorious body. That's the promise of imaging and imitating Christ. That's why Paul says, there's so many bad examples out there. I don't want you to imitate those. Imitate me, he says. Imitate Timothy. Imitate Epaphroditus. All through the New Testament. That's why we're in a local church. To imitate Christ as we can see the glory of Christ in one degree or another in every one of us. Giving us a model of what that's going to look like. And so Paul concludes with this hope that you will have a resurrected body matching that of Christ. And the external pointing again to the internal that you are safe. I was thinking about first hour, my friend Jack who passed away years ago and this week of his death I was talking to Jack about what he's looking forward to. And he says, I'm looking forward to being, being free, being with my Lord and being safe. And I said, yeah, I understand that, all the dangers of this world and all those things that can go wrong. He says, no, no, Rick, you misunderstand me. I don't mean safe externally, I mean I'm safe. I don't manipulate, I won't deceive, I won't hurt people, I won't use people. I'm safe because I'll be truly human in the way I was designed to be. And that's only going to happen in the resurrection. And it happens because of Christ. And Paul ends by saying, talking about our glorified bodies, and this will be, we can guarantee it because it comes by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. He's speaking of the power that God exhibited when he rose Christ from the grave, Romans 1.4. Christ was declared to be son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul meant in Philippians 3.10, we looked at a few weeks ago, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection body of Christ is the prototype and paradigm of ours. So as we imitate Christ, it's not just moral, ethical realities. Paul is saying, now it has that, but one day there will be a physical component to this. You will have a glorified body just like his because Christ is the image of God. He fulfilled humanity's purpose. He is a complete and true picture. And he is the one that can transform your soul as he does the body just as easily. But it all does depend on what Paul's talking about. Do we have that mentality? Are we making Christ our supreme value and living for those things? Let me close with Romans 8, 5 through 6, because Paul says it beautifully. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Paul's words in Philippians. Father, we pray that as Paul commanded us to imitate him and imitate others who walk according to the example that Paul left,
that we ourselves individually would be looking for godly lives to imitate, and we ourselves individually would be godly lives that others could imitate. Father, we don't just pray that for ourselves individually, but we pray that for a ch- as a church as well. And Father, we are very well aware, aware of our imperfections and our shortcomings and our desperate need of grace, which it makes it all the more important for us to have this mind that Christ is the surpassing value of all things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.